Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Adrian Thomas, a well-known thought leader in the resourcing industry in the UK, a member of the RL100 Advisory Council, and a retained consultant in the TA and resourcing space via his consultancy vehicle, Wallbridge. Adrian's had an epic career so far, covering everything from strawberry picking for a jam manufacturer through to head of resourcing and executive recruitment for the whole of the UK civil service. He transitioned into recruitment after starting in HR, somewhat the opposite of the norm, because he strongly believes that recruitment is the most important part of the people life cycle. He's worked for super large organizations like GlaxoSmithKline, RBS Global and Network Rail, and has identified the large strategic differences between global business and single country organizations, as well as the challenges of recruiting in the public sector, where he learned the hard way how to attract top talent despite paying significantly under market. Today, he leverages his wide-ranging experience as a consultant, TA director, and board advisor to a number of organizations around the globe. We're going to have a pretty far-ranging conversation about all things talent acquisition today, and I'm excited to dig in. Adrian, thanks so much for your time. No worries, Tom. I'll do my best. (laughs) Oh, thank you. No, it's looking forward to it. So I guess as with all of these things, I've given a super short form intro and, you know, anybody that looks at your LinkedIn profile for more than a few seconds realizes quite how much experience you have, which is epic. Maybe we could just start by sort of how you got into the HR industry in the first place. Well, that's a long, long time ago. And uh, I guess one of the reasons I get asked to to help people is because of my longevity. So uh, I had a bit more hair back in the day when um, I needed to pay my way through university no student grant and a need to put food on the table brought me to a, to thinking about some ideas. And one of those was to set up a CV writing company, Longacre Personnel Consultants Limited. Uh, my dad had a brilliant idea for choosing a company name by taking a London A to Z and sticking a pin in it. Longacre is a road just just off Covered Garden, and um, and hence the no, name of, of the first company that I got involved with. And I wrote a lot of CVs. I had a couple of tricks up my sleeve. There was only ever two CVs, so they were largely templated. And when people wrote in, they filled in an, a CV details form, and that was actually a ripped-off Michelin application form. I was living in Stoke-on-Trent at the time, big Michelin factory there. And from that, from those few details, I, I filled in and created a, a CV, which was uh, very nicely uh, printed off onto paper. You couldn't photocopy. There wasn't um, many photocopies around in those days anyway, uh, but it was non-standard size. I had it made specially, and when it folded up into a card, it was looked very, very nice, very, very professional. Not compatible with today's scanners and um, and apps that would uh, would upload it automatically to a system, but it got people interviews. And I did in the in the range of about four thousand CVs um, for people, including members of Margaret Thatcher's cabinet at the time, chief fire officers uh, or Saudi Arabia chief fire officer. So there was um, there was quite a wide range of people who um, who did that. Anyway, got me through university and uh, focused a little bit on uh, on chemistry rather than the management sciences, but uh, left uh, left university and joined the Wellcome Foundation in HR. And that was the start of the career. And uh, the Wellcome Foundation is today's GlaxoSmithKline. 
And um, having studied chemistry and, uh, and postgraduate uh, degree in toxicology, it seemed natural to be drawn towards the pharmaceutical industry. And grateful as I am for all that time I spent at Manchester University, coming down to the southeast and, and getting a real job and working in HR, when it was called personnel and it was a bit of a, a career that people perhaps giggled at more than they, it wasn't seen uh, real. But uh, I very quickly realised the impact that having a really effective um, personnel or HR team and, and uh, could have to an organization. And that's where I stayed. And throughout my career, I, I spent a long time in HR and then transitioned into recruitment because they required a, a, to, to improve their, their recruitment, approach to recruitment. It was done very locally, but as the organization was acquired and merged and to become the GlaxoSmithKline we know today, it needed to think globally. And so uh, I set up the very first dedicated recruitment team in that organization. And then my second career in HR, the TA part of HR, took off. And uh, I've been there helping organizations with a passion, because I do believe uh, it's not a bit of a giggle of a career. It is a, it's a, a role that can really define the profitability or success of an organization. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very pleased to have had some success in delivering a little bit uh, of my knowledge into those organizations. No, to say the least. I think you made a few really interesting points there. And, and I guess one, love the fact that you started out on the kind of candidate side, right? Delivering a candidate service through CV rowing, I guess, builds a lot of empathy on the other side of the table when you're doing recruitment and TA today. I think secondly, you talked a lot about the HR and personnel at the time, as you say, um, space being a kind of second order career or kind of laughed out or giggled out or the importance of it not really being fully appreciated. I think the world is still learning that lesson today, I think, right? Like how much do you think that's matured? Do you think organizations today across the board actually appreciate the importance of getting this stuff right? Or do you think there's still lots to be learned there? There's huge amounts to be learned. It's, it's very frustrating. I shout at every opportunity the importance of listening to TA teams. I think one of the problems we have is it's often seen as an entry-level position, a recruiter in an organization. And often an organization's first touch with a with TA is actually via an agency and via and then it's a commercial relationship and it's a bit at arm's length. And um, I, I work hard to try to break that down and get companies to think of agencies as an extension of themselves. If they've got in-house teams, to think about uh, that in-house team as being the critical path uh, a candidate takes, the touch points that the recruiter can bring to get that uh, to get the, the successful uh, candidate on board, hugely important. Now, we've seen uh, studies show that having an effective TA function improves profitability. Boston Consulting Group did this uh, a few years ago, proved that having an effective TA function generated profits three and a half times greater than organizations that didn't have an effective uh, TA or recruitment uh, function. The best HR departments only ever achieved twice profitability to you know, between the highest and lowest performing. So you know, if you can get a great HR department, but even more importantly, have a really, really effective recruitment uh, resourcing or TA, whatever you want to call it, function, then you're set for, for if you're an organization, for great things, if you're a company, for, for great profits. It makes so much sense. And I couldn't agree with you more, which is kind of why I asked the very leading question, right? Like, I feel like organizations still really don't appreciate this stuff. And I think it's great that you're seeing surveys come into the market and you're seeing other people trying to argue that. I think we've seen COVID 
be a bit of a change agent in that. And certainly from my perspective, the organizations we talk to are taking this stuff a lot more seriously now, even if it's because they feel like they've been forced to. But yeah, I, I still think we're like very, very early on in this journey. Again, looking at your LinkedIn profile and kind of going through your oodles of experience from GSK all the way through, you've worked for a range of different businesses, right? Very large businesses, some slightly smaller businesses, global businesses, single country businesses. Like, how do you think that's shaped your perspective? Like, what sort of view do you have that you feel is kind of unique on the market today? I think the uniqueness of my view is is that it's not unique. It's very different for every market and every role. Too often, people try to squeeze things into a process or policy, a single way of doing things. Whereas attracting and hiring great talent in the Philippines is quite different to attracting and retaining talent in the UK or, or another European country. People think differently. They, they listen to different advice. You know, often you've got to talk to people's influencers if you're trying to recruit uh, young people in the UK to join a, you know, a graduate scheme or, a, or an apprenticeship program. I shouldn't say young, people who are less experienced, perhaps. Then you often are talking to their influencers, their friends and their parents here to persuade people around the target that a candidate that, that you're a great option. That's different in different cultures and understanding how people react with the market. There's also differences in routes to market globally. And if you're not uh, adapting your processes for the sophistication of the market, then you're not going to hire the best people. And remember, when I talked about having a great TA function, delivering three and a half times the profitability uh, in a company that has a poor TA function, then being great in every market and every culture is important. You can't just do it in the UK and collect an award and be atrocious elsewhere in the world. That won't that won't help. But um, having a, an organisation that believes in what you do, investing in the TA capability around the world, and having resources and TA recruiters who understand the markets. You know, I I think that um, recruitment is a transferable skill within market. I've worked in finance and pharmaceutical and transportation. Uh, I believe just as effectively. But would I? transition as well to the Chinese market or, or the uh, Middle Eastern market. Uh, probably be better to hire someone who, who really understands those markets and to invest in TA in those markets. So my advice to organizations operating in those global multicultural markets is to get the right TA people in place to maximize your presence in the market and, and create a, an attraction, a pull where the best candidates, the top candidates, see you as a career choice. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, pulling out an example, I love the fact that you talked about the cultural differences of recruiting in, say, you know, the Philippines as an example market versus the UK, and, and also thinking about those additional stakeholders. I remember back in my first business, we were trying to recruit engineering talent, like entry-level engineering talent in, in a small competitive market, and we couldn't do it. So we went as far as sort of setting up this thing we called the coding program to essentially work with schools to train 16-plus over a year in evenings to essentially build that entry-level pipeline, foster relationships with local organizations, et cetera. The kids, shouldn't call them kids just like you said earlier, but I'm going to call them that in this context, I'm allowed to. They loved it. The program delivered amazing results. Everybody was really keen. The consensus amongst the student population was that this was a fantastic, viable career alternative to university, get straight into industry, relevant experience. 
application numbers were capped and we never really understood why until we spoke to parents. And there was a lot of conservatism in the parents. They weren't interested. They didn't want to engage. They were discouraging their children from participating. And the actual solution was not to dig deeper into the student population. It was to run targeted employer branding ads to the parents. It was to educate them. It was to go to parents' evenings. And all of a sudden, the whole thing flourished and the bottleneck was absolutely not what we thought it was. And I think we see that in lots of markets where people are You know, we've worked with logistics and trucking organizations that have advertised to wives or husbands of truckers to talk about the broader employer benefits of of those things in a fairly commoditized market, right? And I think people don't appreciate the importance of reaching out beyond the target enough. Yeah, I think those are the things that start to mark an organization as being more sophisticated in their approach to recruitment than, than many others are. You know, sticking an advert out there by whatever means. I mean, we used to, you know, put it in the newspaper. Now, probably Indeed or one of the other job boards is the place where people put it, and they think that's that's being modern. And uh, well, actually, it's just a it's just a different way of doing a very old way of recruiting. Much much more interesting to start thinking about what is the attraction pull, what would get people talking to you, what would get them to choose you over someone else. To start talking about that brand message, the EVP. And also then how you're going to take people through quite a a stressful process, you know, if you're if you're applying for your first job or even if you're applying for your fourth or fifth job and you're risking leaving an employer that's paying you a pension to take a step into the unknown. That's a very stressful place. And to be able to recognize that and then to hold the candidate's hand through the process, de-stressing, simplifying making it a smooth journey. So getting a message out to the right people and then making it really easy for them to walk through the process whilst you put people into merit order so that you are selecting the uh, the, the very best out of those that are applying. That's, that's absolutely right. I think let's move on a bit and talk about what you're doing today, right? So you've got your own vehicle, you're consulting. Kind of elaborate a little bit on the services you provide, please. Well, that's very simple. So um I tend to be a purchase that companies make when they when they need help. So I will generally talk to an organization about why they aren't achieving optimum recruitment. Why are they feeling that uh, uh, they're struggling to attract? Why they've got vacancies? Why are people leaving them? And uh, to do that, I tend to use a, a couple of tools. One I use the most is a maturity model. So we take a look at all aspects of their approach to recruitment. That includes retention as well, by the way. So you don't you know if you don't need to recruit, that's the best possible solution. So are you retaining your very best people um, right through to the uh, processes, policies that you have, the systems that you're using and the people that you're deploying? in that recruitment activity. And quite often you find that organizations think they're a lot better than they are. And uh, pointing it out uh, to to a company that, uh, you know, that their managers are actually making some very poor decisions. When you look at the, let's just say, diversity of of application and you see a cliff edge drop off in, in ethnicity hiring at the manager interview, for example, you can draw some conclusions about what's going on. But the other half of what I do is help organizations then come up with the solutions to fix. So, yes, we point out uh, there's areas of improvement, shall we say. Then we help organizations think about them. And most organizations struggle. That we, you know, I often walk around with colleagues in, in uh, conferences and, or, or WhatsApp groups, and we're all pretty knowledgeable about um, talent acquisition in a, in, a, in a modern concept, about how you're 
creating brand targeting candidates and bringing them through a very effective assessment process. Many organizations don't have TA teams, resourcing teams. Quite often, they don't have large HR teams. It's often more of a payrolling activity. So taking them through a learning exercise is quite important. Now, I do think that's where I take a slightly different approach to many other consultancies in this area, where they come in and put a solution in and walk away. I like to help the organization implement its own solution. So I'll, I coach them into identifying what's the right thing to do. And then I partner with them and stay off to stay. Some of the organizations that uh, retain me have retained me for years, just checking in every now and again that things are still going well, because I think it's better to transfer the skills and, and learning and understanding and knowledge to the organization. It's that old adage, you know, of um, give a man a fish or something and he eats for eats lunch, teach a man to fish and he, he can eat forever. So I like to teach and I like to explain. And I know there's one organization recently I was talking to had never heard of programmatic advertising. Now, if you talk to most uh, TA professionals, programmatic is something we've been doing for a little while now. And it's a really good tool in the toolkit. Uh, you know, I'm not shocked when I say that some organizations don't even know how to spell it. Yeah, now I can believe you. I think we see a lot of people that still are 100% spray and pray, right? They'll check an ad on Indeed, like you said, and just see what happens. And they think that's good. I guess there's a lot of nuance in taking them on that journey and identifying those problems diplomatically and presenting the solutions in a way that's engaged with. Yeah. And one of the toughest things I have is is getting people to drop the silly success measures that they often employ. I am fed up of hearing about time to hire and cost per hire. Totally irrelevant uh, measures in the modern world. If you think about um, you know time to hire, well, how do you measure the start and finish in a way that you can compare and contrast across industries, even, even within a company? Does the time to hire start when the person resigns or a new role is created and the manager is fretting about how he's going to fill it and, and HR has not even heard about it yet? Or is it when you actually put the advert out and you start attracting candidates? And what happens if a candidate has a one-month notice period versus a candidate who has a three-month notice period? Just picking a candidate can define success in an organization that uses time to hire as a, as a measure. It's ridiculous. And the same with um, cost per hire. You can see exactly where I'm going. You know, how do you define the costs? What do you include? One organization might include salaries in the, in the cost calculation. Another organization may not. So you can't compare. What you can do, though, is use promises. So if I say to a hiring manager, I will deliver a shortlist by Wednesday, did you actually deliver on Wednesday? So substituting actual targets and achievements for backward-facing measures. And by looking at those forward-facing measures, by saying what you will do and then doing it, you start using data that has more meaningful measurement about it. So you can compare between organizations. Do you fill every role that you go to uh, source for? That's a very easy comparison across organizations, across cultures, across the globe. I also try to encourage organizations to think about skills, not roles. Uh, so simply because somebody has left an organization and created a whole, that doesn't mean there's a role to be hired. Now, there's a lot of ways you can fill that by thinking internally about the skills that you have. Do you even know the skills uh, in a, that you have in your own organizations? Consultancies like EY and PwC, they're very good 
knowing the skills of the consultants because they regularly have to deploy them into organizations. But other companies, you know, you an organization as a manufacturing organization might not know about uh, uh, the skills its individuals have had have uh, in that organization. Their succession planning is poor. And as a result, they end up doing distress recruitment when somebody leaves rather than having you know, processes in place. So I encourage forward-looking data that labor market insight is essential. Very few organizations really getting this, get this. But um, if you're posting an advert trying to, trying to fill a role in a particular town that doesn't have many people of that skill, you're wasting your time. So think about your organization and think about how you're advertising and posting those roles. And do you know the, the gender breakdown of people with those skills in that area? Do you know the ethnicity breakdown? These are all tools that are out there or coming to market right now. And uh, sophisticated organizations aren't leaving to chance the, the quality of the hire, the, ethne- the, you know, the, the gender of the hire, or the ethnic background of, of the hire. They're able to target their traction processes so that they have a better than average chance of of being fair in their recruitment and also matching the demographics. I think organizations are about to have a huge wake-up call early next year when the ONS releases the census data. And it's going to be completely different to the 2011 census data. And there's going to be a rush of organizations trying to justify their organization structure and breakdown in terms of gender and, and ethnic minority. So I would encourage organizations now to be thinking about that. And recruitment's the best time for uh, organizers to adjust, to reflect the area they operate in, whether it is in the UK or internationally. It's much easier if you're uh, hiring, if you're opening a new facility, that's the time to get recruitment right and to get uh, fair appointment of of the community so you reflect the community that you operate in doing it afterwards is a nightmare how do you how do you tell people that you you you're no longer wanted because we need more females uh, or particular ethnic grouping it doesn't happen so getting organizations to understand that your recruitment team is one of your best assets in how you are reflected how you're seen by the community that you operate uh, within and using that um, that asset, that recruitment team strategically and not reactively. There were so many, so many cool points. That I just want to pick out a few, right? So first and foremost, I wanted to commend you on the pragmatism. I think it's really interesting. So obviously speak to lots of TA people or recruiters or resourcing folks, whatever you want to call them. And sometimes they can be a bit like the surgeon using the scalpel, right? Like people like to recruit more. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the fact that actually maybe you should be evaluating the skills you already have access to within the organization before you determine the recs that you need or the number of new hires that you need to make. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I think it's one that's not often considered. I think the second thing you said that was really interesting was this kind of lack of understanding of the broader labor market in which people operate. And you talk about labor market data and you know understanding, hey, we're trying to recruit these types of people, but these types of people don't exist where we're trying to recruit. I think that's a key point that isn't well understood. Where do people go to get this data? You know, if you're working with an organization, where do you start in terms of answering those questions? Well, there's there's government data, but as I pointed out, government data is often out of date. And at the moment, the census data is 10 years out of date. There are organizations like um, Horsefly Talent Analytics that um, combine 
thousands and thousands of data points from all sorts of from gov- both government data, social media, all sorts of um, data sources that are, are publicly available. And by combining them, they get a very, very accurate figure and forecast uh, for what each market holds. And they're doing that on a global basis. So um, quite often, the question you've asked me is one I get asked all the time. And helping organizations look at the suppliers out there that can deliver these this information and making it fit for the organization. If, if you're a if you're a US based organization, you might prefer a, a US supplier. If you're in the UK, you might prefer a, a UK supplier. So whilst it's no, there isn't a particular organization that I would say is one size fits all. Um, I'm seeing um, some organizations now getting very sophisticated in, in the data they're able to gather and present. And in the European and um, other uh, global markets, to, to a, a certain extent, um, the US and South American markets, then organizations like Horsefly are lead, leading the way. And, and you know, I mention them for one reason more than others, is that uh, they are the first to market on an ethnicity uh, skills labor market insight so that you can you can search by a skill and get uh, not just salary data vacancy data available skills available numbers but also you can get the ethnicity of that market as well and i think that's a game changer but the point i would make is that is that organizations need to evolve uh, and, need, and need to invest in their ta teams and their ta teams need to evolve to be using the very latest tools and techniques to understand the market otherwise you are just a reactive service you're a very expensive administrator now resourcing should be considered to be part of the strategy department i firmly believe you know that uh, whilst maybe not on the board a ta team should be invited to the board the ta now the global head of ta should be sat at the table whether they're officially there or invited because what they can bring if they are developed in their thinking as i think they should be is a real competitive edge to an organization by accessing not just uh, labor market insight, but also best practice, brand. When organizations are struggling, they know in the UK uh, at the moment, there's over a million vacancies. Now, there's a huge competition for talent, for people. And the outcry is has been the government needs to sort out its visa scheme. Well, my thoughts are, that organizations need to sort out their attraction because there are over a million people unemployed in this country. Uh, Are we making those jobs easier to do so that people who can't work a full week can do them? People who are perhaps less able can do them. So rather than complaining about the problem, what are they doing to help the problem? How are they looking inwardly in themselves about how they can change a role to make it more attractive to someone who has maybe got a, a disability, is less able to travel. So how can they make that a work from home role? How can they make you know those roles that you need to attend, factories or drivers roles, how do they make them more attractive to people to undertake that activity rather than sitting back and saying it's someone else's problem? So I, I encourage organisations to take control, to look, as you say, to look inwardly first to see if they can solve the problem. Do they really need the role? Do they have the skills elsewhere in the organization that they can redeploy? If the answer is no, they don't, then how do they go out to market to attract people who may not think of them as a solution? There is The labor is out there. It's just not being 
uh, the roles aren't being presented in a, in a way that people feel able to apply for them or they're in the wrong place. So organizations need to say all these things really suggest to me the importance of having a TA leader at the very top of an organization, helping those organizations think about their staff. Most organizations' biggest expenditure is the payroll. Um, so having someone who's really reflecting, really thinking about that at the most senior levels in the organization, I don't uh, subscribe to the HR director thing where people argue that HR should be on the board or not on the board. I just think there should be a TA leader advising. And if they're not officially on the board because they need someone who's got a, you know, a director qualification to comply with the law on board and board membership, they should have somebody there who's attending the board who uh, can advise on these more strategic staffing matters. And I think TA leaders do it better than HR leaders, simply because it's a, a slightly more narrowly defined skill. We immerse ourselves in it. And um, I think we've become you know, global experts on understanding what brings people to organizations and makes them effective. HR's got a much wider and broader remit, a different remit. And uh, I differentiate between the two. If I'm pushed into a corner and, and asked for my view, I think there should be both uh, HR reporting and TA reporting. They don't report into each other, one into one, or in the, they should be separate into a main board director. That's the difference that the TA can make if it's allowed to perform to its maximum capacity in support of an organization's goals. All fair points and all extremely well made. I think what I took away from that, right, is, is be pragmatic, adapt. And don't try and kind of put a square peg in a round hole if you've got a labor issue, either with skills internally or that your, the market's not responding to, evaluate how you're taking that offering to the market. And also just this continual undertone of like talent acquisition as a strategic enabler. And I think you made a bunch of separate points there. But I think the long and short of it is that we aren't seeing organizations use talent acquisition or resourcing as a kind of strategic decision factor, right? I th We work with an organization very large advertising organization that was expanding into South America and that had a whole bunch of talent growth requirements in South America. And they actually did use talent acquisition as a strategic enabler. What they did is they spent about £50,000, £10,000 split into five cities in South America, advertising a bunch of different roles from art director all the way through to office administrator and everything in between without the intention of necessarily opening five offices, but to understand what the response from the market in each of those five cities was, understand what the average caliber of applicant was, understood what the average demographic breakdown of those individuals were, understand what other pockets of employers those candidates were coming from. And they used that and built a report that they took to the board to say, hey, look, we need to be in this city, and this is why. We've tested the market. We understand what the response to the market looks like. We could go into City X, but the response would be lower. It would be harder to recruit. The caliber of people would be lower. And they made strategic decisions around the growth of their organization by going talent first. And that's a rarity, but it shouldn't be. So agree with you. It is a rarity. It should be the norm. It should be common. But as an industry, we don't help ourselves. I mean, there's a tension between the in-house recruiter and the agency recruiter. And that's really sad. I do encourage uh, clients I work with and organizations that ask me to work in a much more of a hybrid way to see the solution as being both in-house and agency. And by agency, I mean not just a, a recruitment agency, but an RPO or outsourced assessment or you know, having a sophisticated TA leader in place 
can manage both in-house and out-of-house uh, services. Effectively, I think if you're 100% one or 100% the other, you aren't going to be as effective as somebody, as an organization that has, has put together a TA solution, a TA function that brings the best of everything, the best RPO, the best assessment, the best brand, the best agency, the best executive search with the best in-house recruitment uh, team. That's what's going to achieve or give you the best chance of achieving the best success. But I do see an industry that still sees, uh, looks, whether you're in-house looking down at an agency or whether you're an agency looking down in-house, it's wrong. And uh, helping companies pick the right partners and treating those organizations as partners is critical. Completely agree with you. I think We've talked a lot here and, and you know, you made a, a few great points about having to adapt a, a few minutes ago, right? You talked about the, the challenge of that there's a, in theory, a relatively equal distribution of individuals looking for work and opportunities available for those individuals in the UK market, at least. But there's a mismatch that's happening, right? People aren't adapting. People are struggling to position their roles in an attractive fashion. I wanted to dig a bit deeper into that. And I wanted to use your time at the civil service as kind of a case study of that, right? Like from my perspective, I've got a great deal of respect for the job that you did there because we all know that the civil service is certainly in certain roles underpays versus what's available in industry, right? And so would love to kind of understand how you framed that mismatch challenge and how you kind of positioned EVP and what you learned as you went through that journey. Well, we spoke to lots of candidates and wanted to understand, you know, and there's there's probably two or three types of, of candidates that the civil service was encountering. There are some people where the salary was really not secondary to their desire to do public service. And if you can get top rate candidates who, who want to work in the public sector and the civil service for the salaries the civil service was offering, then that's fantastic. You've got a real, you know, uh, perfect match and you've got the motivation the candidate really really wants to be there so you don't have to do much sell it's about selection on the other hand you've, the civil service has um, I think it's over 20 professions now it was something that was started a few years ago seven or eight years ago and I was there at the time when um, we were things starting to think about professions and that meant up to that point uh, the civil service was largely horizontal so once you've got a qualification, once you've got a grade level, once you were promoted, that sort of enabled you to do any job at that level in any department. And people moved around a lot and moved careers quite a lot. They still do. And it's great to spread that you know, high quality caliber around an organization. But the introduction of professions turns some of those roles into verticals where there was you could join as a junior engineer and could emerge at the top as a you know the head of profession, whether that was technology, HR, communications. So there was around twenty odd professions. That meant that um, we were going out to market to try to hire in laterally people who were quite senior in that profession, because uh, the civil service needed roles filled, and that's much harder because those people were earning considerably more, particularly if they're in the private sector and you're trying to attract them. In some instances, the difference was hundreds of thousands of pounds. So uh, talking to uh, senior people about why they should take a role in you know, serving the public at a huge drop in salary, you have to focus on the, on the role and the impact the role has and the wider benefits they're going to get. Some of them quite defined, like a 
it's a great pension scheme in the civil service. People know about that. But also, it's got a, a wider range of other benefits, the approach to development, access to training, flexible working. All these things attra- uh, you know, attract different people. And it was finding what was the match between the individual and the role, and then ensuring the role was sold correctly. To do that, we used an in-house team and we spoke to candidates. You know, we, it, uh, when you're hiring people who are relatively senior, you don't do it via chatbots and, um, and automation, as I would recommend for other types of roles. You have to do it hands-on. You have to get dirty face-to-face or via a telephone or, or, or Zoom. Helping people to understand the impact they can have was one of the best selling points. And seeing the rewards that they can get, you know, you're telling someone joining and joining the civil service and you're impacting 60 million people, slightly more than perhaps you're impacting as a you know, technician or senior engineer in a small factory in Norfolk. I'm, making, I'm not trying to say anything negative about Norfolk, but, um, but you know what I mean? You know, it's having that wider, bigger impact. And to do that, we use a fantastic recruitment team that were very, very good at talking to people and understanding what their needs were and how the civil service could meet those needs for them in their next career move. Sure, and make makes sense. And I, and I think that that's the thing, right, is that everybody has some lever from which they can pull, right? In, this, in the public service, it's, well, public service, right? And civil service is, is public good and all of the broader strokes impact of that versus comparatively what they might be doing in the private sector. But in other businesses, it might be a set of perks or benefits. It might be a particular calling. It might be a particular service being delivered to a particular audience that really resonates with the candidates in question. I think people are too generic oftentimes with their approach. We always talk about employer value proposition as being a tool to put people off as well as to attract people, right? And you need to be quite polarizing from our perspective and say, here is the type of person that this role is going to be incredible for. And here's a bunch of people for whom this role isn't really going to be that compelling and you shouldn't waste your time applying. And I think people are scared to put that out there, but it means that they end up with a funnel of disengaged candidates that they have to invest a lot of time upsetting fundamentally. I totally agree. And, you know, I remember the when I first got into this game, you know, your success was measured by the weight of the CVs you put on the man, hiring manager's desk. The, uh, did you need scaffolding to hold up the pile? Today, it's about uh, relevance. And if you've got um, a role to fill, can you put three or four candidates in front of the hiring manager, all of whom can do the job? That's the measure of success now and and making it hard for the hiring manager to select. If you've got multiple roles, if you've got three roles and five candidates, getting three hires from five candidates is a huge success. That would have been considered probably quite a risque thing to do 20 years ago. It would have um, probably said more about your lack of ability to attract people. Whereas now it talks more to your ability to get relevant people through the process to the end, whereby five applicants can fill three roles, which is a completely different measure. And I suppose that also talks to the fact that I think TA leaders need to evolve and keep evolving themselves. What would have been a success measure for me 20, 30 years ago is not the success measure of today. And I've had to move with the times. And I would talk to TA leaders who are earlier in their career than I am now and encourage them to keep learning, 
to join associations. You mentioned the RL100 right at the start. That's a, a great organization of uh, resourcing leaders. I was very proud to be chair of that organization a couple of years ago. And there, the focus is on helping each other develop to learn the skills. Every day on our networking groups, we share information about tools, techniques, what people are doing successfully. And that, that community is probably you know, the leading community of thinkers in TA at the moment, probably globally. And that's largely because we're helping each other keep up to date, learn and develop and understand how to take TA to the boardroom uh, table. Completely, completely agree. I, I think, you know, my personal background wasn't in, in HR. I love organizational design and recruitment nowadays by virtue of realizing how important it is. But I'm an engineer and a designer. And, and one of the things that always struck me as I kind of came more forthrightly into the industry was the lack of obvious personal development opportunities for people in the space that there isn't the educational ecosystem here there isn't the groups like you've talked about there aren't the podcasts and the other thing they exist they're just less hard to find i think than you'd see in other industries and personal development is less outwardly encouraged and i think it's great i mean obviously we're proud to participate with the r100 as well and it's the reason we do things like this podcast is because we want to contribute to that educational journey but couldn't agree more i think our industry is catching up with others in terms of the pace of change and you as individual recruiters need to be on the right side of that pace of change, right? I think it's really, really, really important. Yeah, so we, and we just don't form a group and say, right, we've got a group and let's make, let's, you know, you can't be promoted or demoted from it. It's actually a group that's dynamic. It changes every year. We invite people into it. But also we have a future leaders program and a mentoring program to help people gain the skills that will enable them to become the future TA global leaders. So, you know, I do think as an industry, we have a role to play in gaining access to the board by improving our own capabilities, by developing more great leaders uh, so that we can't be ignored. We do have a, a, a voice and that voice is getting louder. So I think we spent a lot of time talking about sort of the pros and cons of where the market's at today and some of the sort of shortcomings that we're seeing with with the various organizations that we're fortunate to work with or learn from, etc. I think let's perhaps head towards the finish by talking about what great actually looks like right so you again we're both blessed with access to industries and organizations doing some really fantastic things from a recruitment perspective i guess can you can you just set some context for our listener of what does sort of success and what does great look like in the recruitment ecosystem today well i think agility is key to identifying those organizations that are great at what they do so can they adapt to the problems that they're being presented with quickly do they have access to that knowledge, whether it's internal or whether it is available to them via a supply base? But if, the, if they are asked to respond to an issue in an overseas location, can they do that as well as they can do it in their home location, whichever, wherever those, those are? Sorry, an effective TA team isn't one that sits you know, in the back room waiting to be called. It's a team that is right up there contributing to strategy and is able to respond agile in an agile way to the staffing problems that an organization is encountering. Um, I would probably go one step further and say what you know, a great organization is one that's proactively trying to prevent those staffing problems in the first place, whether it is by having uh, looking at their retention issues, looking at their succession planning, looking at how they're perceived in the market before roles are even available to uh, be recruited for. So seeing 
talent acquisition, recruitment, resourcing, less as hiring someone into the organisation and more as optimum staffing. And that would include in the round, you know, redeployment of people internally, the internal market, preventing loss, as well as hiring new, training new as well. So there's not one number I can say or one activity I say that makes an organisation great, other than saying the TA leader is probably a strategist talking to the senior members of the company, probably at the board, and is able to deliver on their promises via a, a fantastic team and supplier uh, set of suppliers that they have access to. And doing that fast, agile, learning as they go, and able to turn on a sixpence to if the problem they're encountering needs a different approach. Sounds like recruitment utopia a little bit there. I think that one of the things you've kind of alluded to a lot, and it's not necessarily typically sat within the TA function necessarily or the recruitment function, maybe it should be considered there more, is is this notion of retention, right? How are you thinking about proactively retaining the talent that you have? How are you thinking about the impacts of that talent on the marketplace and the perception on the marketplace? I think there's lots of like key decisions that I think have been thrust onto organizations these days to make that's really shaping the way organizations and people are, are viewing them. Thinking things like COVID, work from home, returning to the office, flexible work, opening up recruitment kind of broader within time zone rather than within 30 miles of the office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I saw that you'd written a great article on LinkedIn recently talking about the, the return to the office environment and things like that. I just wondered kind of what your thoughts were on the impact of these big decisions and perception in the market. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, this is accelerating something that was already happening. So the job for life is gone. Now, when you hired someone, the expectation was that they'd be retiring from your organization. That was the organization's and the individual's um, expectation. That was already a long way on the way out <laughs> before we see the, the technological growth over the last 10 years, the use of social media, the use of conferencing. I couldn't have listed five conference tools two years ago. Now, COVID hits and enforces a work from home. And now I've probably got eight or 10 apps loaded that I use regularly, probably Zoom and Teams the most. Uh, the one that, that you're using for this uh, this podcast is a new one on me. Uh, so that's a, that's a great learning for me. Thank you very much. But that's why retention is now so important, because that job for life was on the way out. It is now definitely gone. And organizations are going to be in replenishment mode. So if you can just slow that down even a little bit by being good at retaining people, by provide, by anticipating and providing the working conditions and the reward that they, that they need, they want, then great. People used to walk across the road between call centers for 50p an hour. Call centers are now largely distributed across time zones and you can probably switch organization three four times a day if you wanted to <laughs> if you and uh, and so when i talk about retention it doesn't mean retaining someone for life it means retaining the skills that person has just that little bit longer than your competitors it's the old adage of how fast do you have to run to outrun a lion and you only have to run faster than the person next to you. <laughs> so you don't have to win the race. You don't have to be faster than the line. You just have to be faster than your competitors. And retention, you know, why create a recruitment problem when you can 
prevent it in the first place. And, you know, that we can keep listing, you know, good sayings like prevention is better than a cure. But I do believe it's true. And I do believe that um, retention has never been a strategy in organisations because until fairly recently, it didn't have to be. People joined for life. And, but now it's, uh, I think it's right up there in the top one or two things that organisations need to be doing. The TA team, I think, is a great place for it. They understand what motivates people. They understand what attracts people to organisations. Why wouldn't they be the team that then builds on what keeps them there? So I don't think it sits in HR or anywhere else. It's For me, it's a TA, talent acquisition issue. And preventing talent acquisition is as important as delivering talent acquisition in my view. (laughs) That is a very eloquent way of putting that. And I think a great place for us to wrap up today. So thank you so much, Adrian. I think, but before we go, just remind the audience exactly what you do, what type of organizations you like to work with and how they can get in touch with you. Right. So I always work from the in-house perspective. So I go in, I help organizations optimize their recruitment, optimize their recruitment teams. If they've got a team uh, or help them create the team, if they haven't, I do that um, through a company called Walbridge uh, Limited, 1L in Walbridge, W-A-L, Bridge. And I often then stay and help run their recruitment processes for a little while before handing over to hopefully a superb head of resourcing that, again, I often help identify and, and, and take into that organisation. And the organisations are help are global, a few in the UK, London-based, Peterborough-based. I also work out of Spain, I have a, an office in Cartagena, which is a big naval town, a bit like uh, Portsmouth in the UK. And I help organisations um, in Spain as well. A couple of clients in the States. So um, I'm happy to talk to any organisation, large or small, wherever they're based. And if I can help them just turn their TA capability up one notch, hopefully more, then for me, it's a win for the TA industry and not just me. Amazing. Adrian, thank you so, so much for your time today. For more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. We've got many more guests just like Adrian coming every week. Please go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tom.